Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, sponsored by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takesta, and I'll be your host tonight. This evening, we're very, very privileged to have Dr. David Boyer to speak to us about some of the latest advances in medical treatments to help people with low vision. Dr. Boyer is a renowned retinovitreal surgeon, and he has spoken throughout the world on different aspects of ophthalmology as well as treatments for macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, and other retinal conditions. Dr. Boyer's group has one of the largest retinovitreous groups in the state of California and perhaps in the western United States. They literally cover the entire southern California region there. So thank you very much and welcome to the show, Dr. Boyer. It's my pleasure to be here. Yes. Well, you know, this past decade, I would say, since 2000, I, I really have been just so amazed with all of the different types of clinical trials and studies that have been performed. And with your group, uh, you have your retina update. Just the changes that the different types of treatments that are available is just staggering. Um, what, what do you think is the main reason that we're seeing such amazing developments in this decade as compared to, you know, uh, dozens of decades in the past? We just haven't seen it. Do you think that this is just related to science, or is it more funding, or what do you think that's the reason for these advances? Well, I think it's several things. I think you hit upon it. I think we now have a little bit more science. We We actually... They've been able to isolate vascular endothelial growth factor, which is a protein that causes leakage and new blood vessels to form and is associated with decreased vision and wet macular degeneration and diabetes. So when that was isolated, they began to look at drugs to block that to see if that would be able to reduce leakage and, and to improve vision. And sure enough, for both diabetes and for macular degeneration, they were able to find drugs that totally blocked the VEGF and, and were able to cause an improvement. We had some idea of that going back five, six, seven years ago when we first started getting into selective VEGF blockers where only one portion or one what we call an isoform of VEGF was blocked. But that the real advances, you know, in wet mechanism generation diabetes started to um, come about as a result of the findings of Napoleon Ferraro isolating the VEGF and then Genentech um, isolating and, and, and creating a eye drug, ranibizumab, and then uh, Phil Rosenfeld and others finding that you can use the off-label use of a Vastin and receive a similar results. So I think that was really the turning point. I think that's really the paradigm shift occurred when that started to um, become more commonplace in our treatment paradigm. Well, let's talk about that first. I know we have a lot of listeners who do have macular degeneration. And would you just first briefly describe what is wet macular degeneration and what are the treatments that are available now to help these patients? Okay. So essentially, macular degeneration it can be divided into dry and wet. And um, at this time, dry occupies approximately 85 to 90% of the patients with macular degeneration. Dry changes represent small changes in the pigment epithelial layer and the 
formation of what we call drusen, which are little amorphous bodies that are really the waste products from our visual cycle. And these uh, waste products build up, and over a period of time can damage the photoreceptors. So essentially the film in the camera becomes damaged, but it takes a long period of time. And for the most part, many patients will have dry changes for years and years and years without suffering any significant visual loss. Now, about anywhere from 10 to 15% of patients may go on to developing new blood vessels. And the, the new blood vessels that are formed are abnormal blood vessels that were not present previously. And these blood vessels begin to develop for an unknown reason possibly related to inability to um, protect cells from um, viruses and different stimuli, whether it can be oxidative stress or ischemia, or it can be um, some type of abnormal um, bacteria or protein. And because of that, it begins to activate the cell wall, which causes this VEGF to be activated and eventually causes... Um, the VEGF to create new blood vessels and eventually leakage into and under the retina, causing a loss of vision. So when you talk about wet macular degeneration, you're starting to refer to patients who have gone on to developing abnormal blood vessels that um, cause a loss of vision based upon uh, leakage and bleeding. So when when the blood vessels, the abnormal blood vessels, are bleeding under the retina, it causes a person's vision to be blurred and wave, wavy. Um, what what is it that uh, you can do as a retinal surgeon or to to go ahead and to stop that bleeding? Well, as I indicated, you know, the, the treatments have improved. I mean, you know, if you go back 15 years ago, the only treatment available at that time was laser treatment to destroy the blood vessels. And laser treatment, unfortunately, was not selective in destroying blood vessels. In fact, it destroyed the overlying retina and the underlying retina so that you would end up with a spot, and that spot, if, if the blood vessels were under the, the center vision, would cause an irreversible sudden loss of vision. So about 11 years ago, we were able to use something called photodynamic therapy, which is a treatment where you inject a photosensitizing dye into the uh, arm and then about 15 minutes later activate the dye with a special wavelength of laser. And that was selectively um, causing coagulation within the um, blood vessel wall. It was actually activating... Um, the endothelium and causing the uh, clotting within the, within the blood vessel. And that was effective in reducing visual loss, but, but the visual loss still was present from baseline. In other words, most patients lost vision, but they just didn't lose it as, as rapidly. And then we had the addition of macogen, which came about about five years ago. And that was helpful also, again, in um, reducing visual loss, but again, not getting an improvement. But it wasn't until three to four years ago when we began to use Lucentis and then eventually Avastin, where we actually saw an improvement. And the way Avastin and Lucentis work is by blocking this VEGF stimulus. And as I said, VEGF causes new blood vessels to form and leakage. So if you block that stimulus, you, you get a 
reduction in leakage, or you can get, you know, the, the fluid to go away, and the blood vessel themselves to uh, regress because you don't have the stimulus for them to grow and continue to grow. So if you presented today, I think almost everyone would probably begin some form of anti-VEGF therapy in attempt to stabilize and improve you, stop the permeability, stop the angiogenesis. So with these two different drugs, Avastin and Lucentis, how do you administer that? Are these eye drops or do you give them a shot? Well, these unfortunately are both drugs that have to be administered uh, with injections into the eye wall itself. The injection is given into the white portion of the eye, but the eye is numb. And patients really don't complain very much of, of discomfort. You have some discomfort from the numbing process, and you have some discomfort from the sterilization using some form of iodine, usually betadine, to sterilize the area. But the actual injections don't hurt, and they're administered, you know, there are various ways, but usually approximately monthly until they're stable, and then they may be extended. Or some people will administer, continue to administer monthly, while others will continue to administer until they're dry and then follow them at that point to see if they require additional um, treatment in the future. Now, Dr. Boyer, I know that there's been a lot of uh, excitement about the release of a VEGF trap, and can you describe what would be the benefit uh, when that becomes approved? Well, VEGF trap is, a, is very interesting. Um, VEGF trap is a decoy and actually binds VEGF by creating a false receptor and the false receptor that it creates is, um, is has a higher affinity than natural receptors. So it's able to actually grab all the VEGF that is um, around um, and is able to actually um, neutralize it in that manner so it can't go to the receptor and activate the cell wall. The advantage of it is in trials, after receiving three injections of monthly injections of the VEGF trap, the patients were then treated every two months. And in the patients that were treated every two months, um, it actually was able to um, give the same visual results as monthly uh, Lucentis injections. That was the control group was monthly uh, injections of Lucentis. So theoretically, you may reduce the treatment burden to the patients and to the physicians by utilizing a drug that has a stronger affinity and may be able to reduce the number of injections that are necessary over a long period of time. So, yeah, the patients will like that. So they don't have to go in for as many injections. And I'm certain just economically to the uh, Medicare budget, it's going to make things more affordable because uh, these drugs can be expensive. Well, we don't know what they're going to charge for VEGF trap eye yet, but oh. I'm sure that, um, you know, we will have that information as their, what they call PDUFA date is, is August 29th. So we'll probably have an approval of the drug August 29th. We may not have the drug available till December as um, even though the drug may be approved, the CMS, which usually pays for, for these treatments, We'll have to put it in their formulary, and they'll have to um, decide, you know, when they'll start doing that. And so there may be a delay from when patients hear about it and, and read about it and 
on television and radio and, and uh, newspapers and magazines before it's, you know, commercially available for all of us to utilize. Now, with people who have diabetes and it affects the retina where the blood vessels of retina are also leaking, are you able to use these same two medications to help people with diabetic retinopathy? Yes, absolutely. It's, uh, that's, I think, the most interesting thing about this. Um, because the commonality in, in both diabetic retinopathy and for what macular generation is the increased amount of VEGF. In fact, there's more VEGF that is manufactured in patients who have diabetes than in patients who have uh, macular degeneration. So what, you, what you're seeing is that when you administer these drugs to patients with what we call diabetic macular edema, this is a leakage of serum that goes into the macular area, the antipermeability aspect of these anti-VEGF drugs is great. So we just reported, um, you know, the VIEW, um, I'm sorry, we just reported the RIDE and RISE trials, which were two very major trials that were done on patients with diabetes and macular edema and showed a phenomenal improvement over laser or over the natural history. Now, it was not a direct comparator to laser, but patients who were in the control group were allowed to receive laser if need be. And um, despite this, the results were overwhelmingly statistically significant in really improving sight, improving vision, and improving uh, outcomes, anatomic outcomes. So I think you're going to see a, a huge shift in the future as to how diabetic retinopathy is treated. Um, and at the same time, in, in a stage two trial, uh, the VEGF-TRAP-I came up with similar results. And just prior to all this, Macugen came up with good results in a European study that looked at the same thing, though the results were not quite as um, impressive as those with um, the pan-VEGF inhibitors such as um, uh, VEGF trap I or the ranibizumab trials. Now, when patients do have diabetic retinopathy and they have the swelling of the macula, the macula edema, are there other types of medications that you might use, such as steroids, or are there any type of long-lasting steroids that are coming to the market? Well, we, you know, Alamira has a uh, what they call fluencinolone drug that's administered in the office. It is an injection in the eye. It's non-biodegradable. In other words, the little husk, if you want, or the outer shell will remain there. It's very, very small and uh, liberates a fluencinolone, which is a form of steroid, and it's liberated between a two- and three-year period. And their visual results were extremely good. Um, they, they had excellent results, certainly out to two years after one injection. And the comparator or the control group received a variety of different uh, treatments, some of which were on-label, such as laser, and some of which were off-label, in that patients may have received anti-VEGF on a periodic basis or some other treatment. So... The steroids, at least looking at the one that's closest to, you know, going for approval would be the Alluvian implant by Alamira Sciences. Um, the major side effect of all the steroids is the formation of cataracts, which 
unfortunately was almost ubiquitous. About 80% of patients who had this drug did go on to developing cataract formation and the formation of inter, uh, increased interocular pressure, which most of the time was able to be controlled by topical drop medication. And a small percentage of people, it was unfortunately necessary to actually do filtration procedures or some type of pressure-lowering surgery to reduce the pressure to a safe level to allow the patients to function well. Well, I also know that you're involved in a different type of a cataract surgery for people with macular degeneration where you and other surgeons are implanting a telescope to replace the, the lens that has been removed when there's a cataract for people with macular degeneration. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, sure. The, unfortunately, even with all the new treatments, there's still patients who end up with poor vision. And, um, you know, we, we strongly recommend those patients go to places like the Center for the Partially Sighted or Braille for low vision um, evaluations and, and possibly low vision devices that may improve the quality of their life. Um, many patients may require a little bioptic or a little telescope on the outside of their eye um, to enhance their vision. And it was found um, in Israel by Dr. Lipschitz that um, he was able to modify an interocular lens um, that's placed at the time of cataract surgery and to make it as you would with a small telescope that would be placed externally. The advantage is that the field of vision is bigger because it is inside the eye versus outside the eye. You can't tell that it's there. It's just as if you, you know, put a normal lens in. But what the lens, what, what this telescopic system does is it magnifies the image when it hits the retina to the point that you're hoping that you can reduce or minify the scotoma or scar that you have from macular degeneration, and that the patients would be able to see around it. So in controlled clinical trials, this was found to be effective. They were able to treat patients and get several lines of improvement over the natural, you know, over the, what they were able to do before. In contrast to conventional cataract surgery, where the image is not magnified and the image is unfortunately placed directly sometimes onto the area of damage, so the amount of vision forthcoming may not be as great as we would like. The criticism of the original study, of course, was that they didn't really compare it to some of these bioptic lenses to see if, you know, a group of patients would have had similar results. However, the patients who tolerated the procedure who um, underwent it were very happy and um, did very well. Not everyone did well, but but overwhelmingly, statistically significant improvements in vision and um, functional vision, meaning that when they look at what they call VFQ25, VFQ25 is a set of questions that allows patients to say, wow, this was good, it improved the quality of my life. So, when, you know, we can talk about vision improvement, but when the patients feel that the quality of their life improved, that's as important as any vision that you can possibly measure. And, indeed, that was improved dramatically in this study. But patients to be eligible have to have a cataract, and they have to have poor vision in both eyes. And what you do, essentially, is you would have to take 
and put the implant in one eye, and then you'd use the other eye as a distance or a get-around eye. And then this eye with a pair of glasses would be able to magnify and hopefully improve your quality of vision to see people's faces and things, and also, depending on the glasses, to read and, and different um, the tasks that you want to accomplish. It's quite amazing. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing, and I'm, you know, it's only the first step. This is the first one, and I've talked to Dr. Lipschitz, and um, he's already on to number two and three and, and, and trying to improve upon what he has, but it'll be years and years before that's available. Well, we know that we also have a lot of listeners who have other types of retinal conditions, such as Lieber's, retinitis pigmentosa, and Stargardt's. And can uh, you share with our listeners some of the research that's going on with a lot of this gene therapy? Okay. Well, you know, I think for Lieber's, certainly gene therapy is going to be, I think, um, will eventually become the treatment of choice and will become the treatment of choice very, very early. And I think we can thank the Genome Project for allowing us to isolate uh, many of the genes that affect people for some of these hereditary diseases, even some of the recessive diseases that, you know, that we really don't have any family history and it's very hard to um, come up with reasons. We're able to at least identify genes. Now, it's been shown that you can use what we call vectors. These are vectors are just ways of bringing the a new gene into the area from a defective uh, the defective genes there, but you can bring new healthy genes in, and these new healthy genes can grow. And if they grow, then you can possibly secrete enough of the enzyme or, or what the person's lacking to allow them to see. And, and certainly the work that was done in, in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, um, you know, was groundbreaking. This is one of the first things that we've been able to show was able to reverse a hereditary disease. But I think this is going to become more commonplace in the future as we are better able to determine which genes are really need to be upregulated, which enzyme needs to be upregulated. Now, for Stargardt's and geographic atrophy, um, Stargardt's is a hereditary condition that affects younger people. It can affect them with uh, visual loss before you can see signs of uh, any change going on in the retina. They are doing some studies looking at stem cells in that case and for geographic atrophy, and they're putting, um, making a little hole in the retina and injecting these stem cells. Now, the results from, from Europe were, you know, encouraging, but they were not overwhelming. And um, I think that just putting the cells there alone may not be the total answer. You're going to probably have to add other uh, nutrient factors that may be able to improve um, significantly upon the results that they'll be able to obtain with just injection of cells under the retina. Now, what about some of the different types of studies that talk about they're using stem cells, and with the stem cells, they're able to replace specific areas such as the uh, retinal pigment epithelial cells. I, I know that some of these have been done in animals. Are, are there any human studies using stem cells to replace a uh, retinal pigment epithelium? Well, there are several studies right now that are uh, being undertaken looking at that. Um, 
and different modalities and different ways of placing the cells. Um, we have, you know, studies that have been done in Europe uh, where they will take in, in Rotterdam, there's a doctor who's done several hundred patients with geographic atrophy or with wet macular degeneration. And what he does is he does a vitrectomy, which is removal of the vitreous gel, and then he isolates an area, usually supranasal or supratemporal, where um, the retina is then isolated. He t- then cuts out a piece of this retina, makes a hole in your, in your own, you know, the same eye's retina, and then places this underneath after taking out scar tissue and clearing up whatever um, debris is under there, and then puts in what they call a silicone oil bubble or something, some means of keeping that retina flat and allowing it to heal. Now, even though they've shown in several, you know, patients um, a, a marked improvement, overall the improvement's modest, if at all, and most patients don't really see a major improvement. Now, that's with whole pieces of retina. The, the pigment epithelium has been done by Coffey, who tried to, who's in England, and tried to um, make an artificial uh, pigment epithelium Brooks membrane. And now it's being done by um, a company that is making pigment epithelial cells and putting under the retina. Susan Blinder in, in Europe uh, has looked at both putting cells as well as actual tissue and has actually not found a major difference between either technique, so which is kind of interesting you would, that perhaps one was better than the other, but at least in her small series, and it was a small series, there was no overwhelming winner of which was the best way of going. And there's another um, uh, research study that's putting it in what they call the subretinal space or, or in, the sub, in the choroid by going in underneath the retina with a little catheter, which allows them to put in medications or cells in this case. Um, Though, again, for all these studies, they sound wonderful, and I'm hoping that they all become, you know, go to fruition and they all work, but we really don't know long-term how the patients are going to do, though we're hoping that um, the information in the future will be very encouraging. Now, I know that there's been also other uh, studies that have talked about what are called neuroprotection, uh, using different types of agents that might keep the cells of the retina healthier. If people have macular degeneration or Stargardt's disease or retinitis pigmentosa, um, can you talk about any of those, such as the ciliary neurotrophic factor? Sure. There there are several different... um drugs that have been, you know, well, let me go back for a minute. There, there's several different ways of attacking the um, dry macular degeneration, and that's pretty much what you're, what you're referring to right now. So you can do neuroprotection, and there are three drugs that we'll talk about in a second. You can do anti-inflammatories. You can try to reduce the inflammation, you know, uh, or you can, re- you know, you can downregulate the visual cycle to try to reduce the byproduct formation. So let's talk about the first one, neuroprotection. Neuroprotection, you know, the drug you were talking about is a silly neurotrophic factor. It's by a company called Neurotech. And Neurotech, is, it's a very interesting um, uh, device that's used uh, to manufacture what they call CNTF. Or, and CNTF is a very potent um, 
protector of um, the ganglion cells and other other layers. In this um, device, it's a little tube, it's a little cylinder that's sutured to the side of the eye. It's placed in after an incision is made, and it's placed in, and it's held in position by one suture. And when you look at the, the results, the results were um, very interesting. The high dose for geographic atrophy seemed to hold vision better and seemed to reduce progression uh, as compared to the lower dose and to the uh, placebo group. And at least looking at what they call optical coherence tomography, which is a side view of the retina, which tells you how thin or thick the retina is, there seemed to be some improvement. The most interesting thing, that, and you, you touched upon this, is that when ciliary neurotrophic growth factors were injected into a, uh, an eye, and what the way it works is you put this little tube in, and they're little, they're little cells, and these cells manufacture on a chronic basis ciliary neurotrophic growth factors. So think of it like a little factory that continues to manufacture and liberate this, this substance. So once you put it in, you know, we've gone now several years with some of our patients that have shown no signs of toxicity whatsoever and probably continue to slowly liberate this material. But what happened is that they did, and they looked at what they call adaptive optics. Now, adaptive optics is looking at all the cones almost. It's the highest form of resolution we have. So when you looked at the cones individually, you found that the patients treated with ciliary neurotrophic growth factors who had retinitis pigmentosa did much better. They actually were able to maintain the number of cones in that area very, very well as compared to a non-treated group or to the other eye where the cones were continued to be lost. So that's a very exciting you know, area there, um, and hopefully they will go on to, again, further... Um, trials, which hopefully will allow us to know, you know, how this directly will work, you know, long-term on patients. The other drugs that are available is bromonidine. Bromonidine, many of the people in the audience have probably heard of. It is a anti-glaucomatous drug, but interestingly, it has a fair amount of neuroprotection. And the, it's the neuroprotective aspect of the bromonidine that's being tested, by injecting it with a, a long-acting um, delivery device, and they're able to get six months or so of, um, of treatment by one injection, which is very, very encouraging. And the third is called tandosporin, uh, um, and this is actually a, uh, it's a serotonin um, antagonist that's approved in Japan, and it's a topical drop. It went through what we call the GATE trial by Alcon, and the results of which we will have at least 18-month data in the next uh, 10 to 14, uh, probably in the next eight weeks, let's say. We will have the the real results at least for 18 months um, of treatment. And if it does show that it's beneficial, this would be a major step um, because this is a topical drop, easy to administer, except for compliance issues of patients not taking their drops, it really reduces the treatment burden and the load for for all of our patients and for the physicians. The other way of treating is to downregulate the visual cycle. And the theory behind this is, well, you know, when when you're seeing things, 
And if you have these defects, that you'll start to make uh, waste products at a faster rate. So if you have more light coming in or if you are doing something and it's stimulating the visual cycle, that you'll have more of these uh, byproducts that are toxic to the endothelium like A2E and, and, and different things like that that are, uh, that are not good to have. So there are two drugs that essentially available, there's fenretinide and there's Acticella, um, and they're both being administered orally, and they're both attempting to reduce or downregulate the visual cycle with the hope that by downregulation that you will have less of a buildup of waste products. The third way, the third major way of looking at it is to look at some of the anti-complement drugs. Now, we have found in the last three to four years the genetics of a large number of people who have wet macular degeneration. So by identifying that certain genes are down or upregulated, or if you have a lack of factor H, what happens to you know the system, we found that the complement system, which is really meant to stop bacteria and viruses and things from attacking the body, may be abnormal, and again, it goes back to something will stimulate the endothelial cell because our body can't protect against it, and it will cause a um, activation of the cell, causing a release of VEGF and eventually leakage and angiogenesis. Um, there are a number of drugs that are being tested. Uh, the POT4 was a C3 inhibitor, and, and this is just there are different ways you can inhibit the cycle. Um, Genentech's looking at a factor D drug that's injected intravitreally. Um, people have even thought of giving factor H, which if you're short in factor H, your risk of macular degeneration goes way up. And then there's a, a number of C5 inhibitors. All those drugs were administered um, intravitreally. There is one drug, um, Clizumab, which is a C5 inhibitor which is already approved. It's a orphan drug that's used for uh, paroxysmal nocturia, nocturnal hematuria, and it is available. The cost to the patient, because it's an orphan drug, is like $100,000 a year. So obviously, if this wow. does become a treatment, we will have to um, have a very serious conversation with the company to uh, reduce that cost. But... Um, Phil Rosenfeld at Baskin Palmer Eye Institute uh, is currently conducting a study using that drug, um, and hopefully we'll have good results. The, the problem, obviously, being that when you, if you administer these drugs orally, you are really suppressing your body's ability to fight off infection, and we're always worried about the potential of infection um, ensuing. So with this drug, you actually have to give a, uh, I think it's meningococcal vaccine um, in order to use it because of the potential side effects. Wow. Well, you know, it sounds like there are just so many different types of uh, tr possible treatments out there. And for so many of our listeners who might be interested in learning if they are a candidate for any of these trials or research, how, how might they go to uh, find out more? Would they just speak to their ophthalmologist, or would this be something that um, there's other ways they could research this? Well, you can certainly go to to, to the clinical trial, you know, .gov, and 
Um, you know, this is it has a list of all the clinical trials, but I think most of the low vision um, newsletters that are out there from the various different groups um, will have a, a fairly good update of what's going on. A lot of the trials are phase one trials, meaning they're really looking at safety and they're looking at a very end stage group of patients. And then phase two, you know, is more of a dosing. You know, what's the ideal dose? And then the phase three trials are are trials where you, you know, are administering the drug and now you're going for FDA approval. So everybody, you know, has, you know, depending on your vision and, and depending how old you are and how risk averse or, you know, you are, you know, you may not want to enter a clinical trial. You may want to have more information if you know, if you're 45 years old and you're really losing a lot of vision, you may be much more aggressive than someone who has still a moderate amount of vision and, and is older. So it really depends, I think, on the person's personality. I would certainly start by speaking to, you know, your eye care professional. Um, if you don't seem to get the, the responses or they don't seem as knowledgeable as you would like, the next step would be to look at something like, you know, get on the internet and look up, you know, Matthew Generation Foundation or one of these other groups that are available out there as a resource and, and see what their websites say. But I think the ultimate, you know, comes back to the retinal surgeon or whoever's doing the research sitting down with you and saying, listen, this is, you know, this is what you qualify for. This is what I would recommend. And the reasons, and if they make sense to you, that you participate. If they don't make sense to you, you wait until something is FDA approved. You know, and the last question before we open up to questions from our, our listeners, what what do you um, what have you experienced with some of the different types of retinal implants? I know that the uh, uh, Second Sight Corporation they have their Argus II, and more recently uh, a group of ophthalmologists and scientists have created a different type of implant uh, for people with retinitis pigmentosa and macular degeneration. Have you had any experience with either of those? Well, the only experience I've had is, is you know, that I attend these um, conferences and, you know, the Retina Society, Macular Society, where people make presentations or the American Society of uh, Retinal Surgeons, which will be taking place in Boston next week. So I've seen a number of presentations, and as, as many of the people probably on the phone have, um, you know, and again, it depends on your level of vision and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, I think all these are, are a great first step. I think these are really, it is an, it's just the stem cells may be making a little baby step right now, and two, three years from now may be, you know, much better, and, and we may have a lot more information. I think that these devices that are available really offer potentially um, potential vision for people who really have virtually no vision at this time. So to me, it's very exciting. There's a group in Germany that has, uh, I think, has done a great job, and certainly Mark Kamayan and the people at Second Sight have done a phenomenal job. Mark is brilliant, and he's done a great job, I think, of uh, bringing this product uh, forward. Um, again, I, I, you know, it depends on your level of vision. A lot of people talk about this, but the level of vision they have is so good that they wouldn't be a candidate, or their other eye is so good that certainly they won't be a candidate. So. I think, again, people have to have realistic expectations. These devices are taking people who are bilaterally virtually blind, maybe with light and dark, 
in allowing them to function at a better level, being able to get around better. It's not going to take somebody who has um, 2,200 vision and allow them to read. Not at this moment, it won't. So I think you, you know, you really have to understand what these devices can do. What are the risks of putting them in? And um, you know, where is it going to be two, three years from now? Is it something that if you do it now, you've lost that ability to take, you know, part in something that may be much, much better a few years down the road? Okay, great. Thank you so much. Uh, you have time for a few questions, Dr. Boyer? Sure. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and let's unmute your phones by pressing star six. And we could go ahead and take questions for Dr. Boyer. And just a reminder, this is being recorded. So if you would like for yourself to be confidential, remain confidential, you do not have to say your name. Okay? So we have a question for Dr. Boyer. Yes, Dr. Boyer. This is Tom Leilis. Uh My question uh, is not quite related to anything you talked about tonight, but it is a retinal situation. When I was young, I had uveitis, and I had uveitis only in my left eye till about 30 years ago. It then flared up, detached the retina in my right eye, and yes, they were able to reattach it, but when they reattached it, it has folds in it, so it is basically rendered it uh, in not available for vision. Okay, Is there anything recent that would help the situation with my retina that has folds in it. Well, when you when you talk about folds in the retina, you're talking about some degree of scar tissue, and certainly, um, you know, depending on what your other eye is like and how long it's been that way, um, you know, additional surgery to remove folds is done very, very commonly. Um, however, if your other eye is perfect, and uh, this eye may have been you know, damage to some degree, your doctor may not want to intervene because he doesn't feel he can get a, a significant improvement. What did your doctor say to you? Did he think that you would not benefit from surgery or that it was a reason given for not proceeding to try to unfold it further? The other eye is has uveitis in it quite badly. In fact, it's it's got a lot of scar too as well, and it's pretty much tunnel vision, and it's very blurry at that. So, uh, really, I don't have anything to lose by having another surgery in my right eye to try to uh, correct the fold situation because it's the out of that eye anyway. See? I didn't know that you could possibly have a, an additional surgery. Well, you know, when you do retinal surgery and you have a detachment. Uh, 10 to 15 percent at a time in some cases, you, you may need to do additional surgery. So I think you need to sit down with your surgeon and, and, and talk to him and say, you know, is there anything you can do that would be beneficial to me and what are the risks and what are the potential benefits? Now, if the doctor feels that there are permanent pigment changes in that eye or something that may be going on that he hasn't discussed detail with you, this may be a time that he can discuss it and at least you'll know what's available to you and what your eye can do and can't do. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We have another question for Dr. Boyer, and I guess that's another indication to remind all of us to receive a second opinion. Another question for Dr. Boyer? Would you like to ask a question to Dr. Boyer? Yes. Yes. Go ahead and ask your question to Dr. Boyer. 
Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, could you tell me anything about uh, retinopathy of prematurity, whether and as we get older, we're full of complications as we as we go on. Anything happening there? And we're talking well, about the older ones, not the newborns. Yeah. So the newborns, they're, they are using actually some of the anti-VEGF drugs, so there are some significant risks that, you know, associated with that. Um, and they've done a number of trials now to look at laser and cryo. The older patients that have had it for some period of time um, pretty much probably have, have, you know, run their course, if you want. There is an increased risk of retinal detachment that has to be um, noted by, you know, whoever gets, you, you know, who, whoever has this disease and also glaucoma needs to be carefully monitored in patients who have this. But um, the techniques that are used to repair retinal folds and retinal detachments are pretty much very similar to what they had previously. So I'm not sure there's been a great deal um, of improvements in, unfortunately, patients who suffer from retinopathy prematurity. I think our, our goal now is to look at patients earlier in the course of their, of their disease uh, and try to reduce the number of patients down the road who develop. Why have they abandoned us? There are not a lot of patients out there. The theory matter is that it, no, I'm very serious, because there's not a lot of patients who have retinopathy prematurity, and because we're able to better treat the patients, there's better monitoring methods, and there's better ways of um, treating the patients so that the number of patients who go on to developing true folds in their retina and some of the more severe complications is actually got down. Thank you. Does anyone else have another question about their own eyes or anything there that you'd like to ask Dr. Boyer? Okay, great. Well, we'd like to thank you, Dr. Boyer, for your time and all your information. That was really, really so valuable. And do you mind giving out a contact number if anybody wants to either call you or email you uh, privately for questions or to perhaps make an appointment? Do you have a uh, contact information there? Sure. They can, um, if they want to get a hold of me, they can call 213-483-8810, make an appointment. Um, and if they want to mail me, it would be vitdoc, V-I-T, like victory, I-T-D-O-C, at AOL.com. Okay, great. So that's vit, V-I-T-D-I-C. D-O-C. D-O-C. Yeah, vitdoc. At AOL.com. At AOL.com. And the number, telephone number again to make an appointment was 213? Yes, 483-8810. Great. Well, we thank you so much for your time. It's really, it's been oh, very, very you helpful. Thank for doing this. this uh, hopefully it was educational for the people. Oh, it thank definitely you. was. For all you listeners out there, you can listen to this again at the CCLVI webpage at www.cclvi.org, or you could also listen to it at airsla.org, and that's www.airsla.org. We'd also like to thank uh, Mr. Dick Burton, the engineer, for recording this, and we hope that you tune in next month when we bring you more of Let's Talk Low Vision. So until next month, good night, everybody. <laughs>